Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 40, The Scott Cast, part 6. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Sean, Carolyn, and Tim for signing up already. All right, so here we are at the sixth and final installment of the Scott cast. So fans of Scotland, who loves you? That's right, I do. Six full episodes, and this was originally only intended to be a single episode, not a month and a half long sojourn into the archaeological records and whatnot. But it has been fun, right? So let's wrap this up in style, with a group of people that has fascinated nerds around the world for centuries. The Picts. So who were they? Well, to start with, when looking at it all, it's actually amazing that Scotland was actually called Scotland at all, rather than Pictland or Pictavia or something like that. And as we go forward in this podcast, we're going to explore how that came about. I mean, it very easily could have been Northumberland or all manner of different names. But before we get going, let's set down some ground rules to make my life a little bit easier. Since this isn't Scotland yet, and it really isn't Caledonia either, can we agree that whenever I refer to Alba that I'm talking about what will become Scotland? Awesome. So at the end of the 3rd century AD, we get our first mention of the Picts. And there's kind of a significant period of darkness where we know very little. I mean, there are invasions and rebellions and tremendous strife. And following all this, by the 9th century, we now have a new nation, the Scots. And those Scots were really no longer the Britons that we've come to know. Their culture had changed over the years in the following centuries of invasion and integration and whatnot. But the last great group of people to hold Scotland before the Scots were the Picts. And it has been common knowledge since around the 12th century AD that the Pictish race and culture had just vanished, while the other cultures of the area, the English, the Irish, and the Welsh, had endured. But did they? Or was Henry of Huntingdon, you know, the 12th century historian, and those who followed him, mistaken? Well, let's talk about those Picts and see. So it's 296 AD. Carousius is dead, and Electus is in charge, but not for long. And as you probably remember, Constantius was going to come in and crush him. And in the panegyric that was written about this event, we get our first mention of this strange group of people that capture our imaginations. According to the panegyric, these were the same group of people who fought against Caesar during his invasions. And actually, this started a trend where Alba was referred to as Pictavia. Now, did these pics that he was writing about predate the Caledoniae? That seems to be what the panegyric is suggesting, after all, he was talking about Caesar, and Caesar was marching around before we heard anything about the Caledoniae. But we need to take that statement with a whole boatload of salt. I mean, this is a panegyric, so it's designed to flatter. And what is more flattering than to compare Constantius's triumph to Julius Caesar's adventures in Britannia? The implication would be that Constantius prevailed where the great general could not. But there's a variety of problems with all this, right? And actually, things start to go sideways with us right at the start. I mean, did they even call themselves the Picts? Just because a panegyrist is calling them that doesn't necessarily mean that that was their tribal name, especially since Picti means the tattooed people or the painted people. So to me, it sounds like a slur, along the same lines as Galatians or Vikings or Franks or Saxons for that matter. 
And we have plenty of sources that we'll get to a little bit later that talk about how the Picts would tattoo their bodies. And so it sounds like this was maybe a slur referencing that habit. And it would be strange that a group of people who were clearly anti-Roman would go and adopt a Latin name that referenced their cultural pattern of behavior regarding body decoration. So my guess is that, at least at first, this was just a slur. And if this was just a matter of lumping all the people into a group based upon their cultural tendency to tattoo or paint their bodies, that tendency actually would be nothing new for them. Herodian wrote about it earlier, and the use of body decoration was even around in the days of Caesar. Hell, it was before Caesar. The name of the island, and the name of this podcast actually, is derivative of a 4th century BC encounter between Pythias and the painted or tattooed natives of the island. I mean, had they not been so strikingly decorated, the island might now be known as Alba rather than Britain. So this custom has been around for quite a long time. So maybe these Picts were just the same old group that we've been talking about for ages now, but just with a new epithet bestowed upon them by angry soldiers along the wall. But they had to have at least been a fairly aggressive northern tribe. So where were they from? Well, generally speaking, they were probably from the area north of the Firth of Forth, as that was generally seen as hostile territory. I mean, that's where the Caledonian Alliance came from, and generally it was a source of a great deal of trouble for the Romans. It's where the Gask Ridge was, which was where Petilius built that Lemus that we talked about earlier. And for three centuries following Tacitus, it was seen as an incredibly dangerous area. So these Picts could well have been just a confederacy of the tribes of that area. Hell, maybe the Picts were just a Caledonian alliance that was made permanent. So maybe the term Pict started out as a Roman slur, but eventually was adopted by a tribe of Britons in Alba who became dominant in the region. After all, at first it seems that the Picts was either a catch-all term or just one of many tribes. But as soon as this term Picti came about, it seems to have kind of stuck. For example, we hear of how Emperor Constantius campaigned against the Picts in 305 AD because they'd surged forth, sending warbands into Britannia. Or how about when Constantine was in the north fighting warbands in 312? But you know, in those situations, they're recorded generally, or we hear of, quote, Caledonians and other Picts, end quote, such as in 310. Or we hear of the Picts as one of many tribes, such as the raids in 314 AD by the Scotti, the Caledonii, and the Picti. It doesn't appear that the Picts were a single nation, or even necessarily a tribe. I mean, Caledonians and other Picts? That sounds like a slur to me. But maybe the constant threat of Rome and the long memory of the atrocities from earlier ages, combined with the weakness of the empire at the time, led to a sort of confederacy. And maybe through adversity and atrocities presented by that enemy, they became a single united Pictish nation. It's possible. Now by 342 AD, it seems that the Picts were more organized. Maybe they weren't a single nation, and if they were, maybe they had a different term for themselves, but regardless, they seemed like they were kind of organized and they were starting to feel their oats. We know this because Emperor Constans had to rush to Britannia to deal with the Pictish problem once again. It seems that they had once again challenged the power of Rome, and this time they'd burned down forts at High Rochester, Bow Castle, and Risingham. But just like we were talking about last week, power was shifting towards Alba and away from Rome. 
And that's reflected in the fact that it seems that Constans might have also had his envoys arrange some sort of deal with the Votadini in order to protect the border. The Votadini were a southern Scottish tribe. So basically what he was trying to do was something similar to how his predecessors had tried to buy peace with the Maite decades earlier. Of course, it didn't work out, just like it didn't work out then. So in 360, the Scots and the Picts broke their trees with Rome, surprise, surprise, and rushed south. Once again, it seemed that the Picts were a single unit here, or at least as far as Rome was concerned, they were a single unit. And the Scotty at this point were Irish. So the Picts and the Scots were working together, and Emperor Julian had to send Lupicanus to deal with it, and peace was established. But it didn't last very long. And in 365, the Picts, the Scotty, and the Atticotti, the people who might have been aboriginal cannibals, attacked. And they attacked probably by sea at this point. And here's where I think that things got really hairy for the Romano Britons. The wall was pretty handy so long as it was a symbol of strength to the tribes to the north. But now they realized that they could get a boat and just go around it. That realization was problematic for the Romano Britons. But it was probably great for the Picts. That's because in 367, we had the Barbarian Conspiracy. And while there were plenty of barbarian nations involved in the plunder and pillage, there was also plenty of Britannia to go around. So, you know, it was kind of party time in Britannia, and everyone was invited. Until someone called the cops in 369. And we know how that ended. Theodosius showed up, turned on the lights, and made everyone go home. And then he tried to set up buffer tribes in the south of Alba. But it really wasn't destined to last, and we're going to have some more trouble as we go on. But that being said, there still was some infighting amongst the tribes of Alba. For example, Magnus Maximus, and I still do love that name, campaigned against the Picts in 384 at what appears to be the behest of the southern tribes of Alba. And that tension, north versus south, is something that we'll continue to see as the story continues. But despite that tension, I think we're starting at this point to see the foundation of a Pictish nation, at least in the north. Again, they probably weren't calling themselves that, but at least it seems that a good part of Alba was willing to work together to get rid of the Roman influence on the island, or at least upon Alba. And they were rather active in the lead-up to the 410 abandonment of Britannia. I mean, you can easily argue that they are a contributing factor to the abandonment. But the interesting thing is that they didn't seem to be interested in conquest, but rather in plunder and raiding. Or maybe they simply took pleasure in weakening their ancient enemies. Whatever the goal, it doesn't seem like the Pictish kings wanted to, or were able to, extend their power into the south. Now in southern Alba, kingdoms began to emerge such as Strathclyde, even though these kingdoms were more like cults of personality than actual kingdoms since they tended to evaporate when a weak king would ascend to the throne. But I can hear what you're thinking. You're saying, Strathclyde? Who cares about that? Let's get back to the Picts. So let's get to the iconic part of the Picts. Regardless of how the Picts formed or what they chose to call themselves, what's really iconic about the Picts are their tattoos. And actually, it seems that this image of the tattooed Pict was tied very heavily to the Roman concept of Britannia in general. At least, it was tied for the Romans to the concept of Britannia. For example, at around 400 AD, the poet Claudian personified Britannia as a woman with her cheeks tattooed. Now, we have centuries of references to the tattooed and painted people of Britannia, so it's possible that he was just speaking about the general 
habit that has been written about for centuries in Britannia. But I think it's pretty clear what group he was thinking about when he wrote that. Or at least, what group of people were still carrying that out. So let's talk about the tattooing. Well, of course, we read about earlier reports of Britons tattooing and painting themselves, and the linguistic history of the term Picti gives us a window into that behavior that was still continuing in the late 3rd and 4th centuries. But one of the interesting things about this is that it didn't go out of fashion. For example, Isidore of Seville wrote in 600 AD about how the Picts got their name from their use of tattoos, which again supports my argument that it was a slur. Apparently, they would use a needle to prick the skin and then dye it with the sap of a native plant. And the designs that were tattooed reflected the person's rank or station. And then limbs were apparently tattooed if you were of high birth. So it was social in nature, but it also must have had some sort of religious significance since it really made the church uncomfortable. We know that because in 787 AD, which I know is way ahead of where we are in the podcast, but this is interesting, the church banned the tattoos. Bishop George of Ostia, who was involved in the banning, said that the pics were covered in, quote, hideous scars, end quote, having put their bodies through, quote, the injury of staining, end quote. So they were tattooed. So those tattoos, it seems like they were a very old custom and one that didn't die out for quite a long time. And in many ways, the Picts were probably the last of the Britons, the final holdout of the ancient pre-Roman culture that had dominated the island for centuries. But they wouldn't die out without leaving a record. From around 400 AD to the mid-800s AD, which again is way ahead of where we're at in the podcast, the Picts went and carved symbol stones all throughout their territory. We found about 200 of them, but there might have been thousands originally. They have strange symbols carved into them. They're quite beautiful, actually, and appear to have some sort of meaning attached to them. It seems possible that this might have originally been used as a substitution for religious offerings. So instead of putting objects into water, you would carve those objects into the stones. And later on throughout the development of the stones, those carvings changed and it looks like they didn't have quite the same meanings. But initially, it seems like people were carving in objects that maybe they were, they were saying, I have given this to the gods or I am spiritually giving this to the gods or something. Or maybe it was an indigenous form of writing. Unfortunately, we're not entirely sure, and if it was a form of writing, we haven't found a way to decode it. I mean, we just haven't found a British Rosetta Stone yet, but maybe someday we'll get lucky and find one, or maybe it was specifically just for symbols for religious or social reasons or whatever. If it is for religious and social reasons, one of the interesting things about that is, unlike putting an object into water, instead, this is something where you're saying to the whole world, this is what I'm giving to the gods. It is a very conspicuous consumption, or actually conspicuous offering, but it's an interesting change. Now, something else that is of particular interest to me, since I'm rather fond of the islands of Alba, is the fact that symbol stones were rather common in the north and actually go out as far as the Shetlands. And actually, early symbol stones have been found on Skye and the Outer Hebrides, but then they disappear in those regions as history moves forward. So maybe the practice originated there and then spread out throughout Alba as the Pictish nation moved forward. Now, while there probably wasn't a unified nation in Alba for much of the Roman period, that wouldn't last forever. And at some point, the forming of a Pictish nation was inevitable. And according to tradition, 
Once it was founded and ruled Alba, it was Carithne who ruled it. But he may or may not have been alone in Alba. You see, according to Bede, there was another group in that area, and this group was from Ireland and called themselves Gaels, but we call them Scots. Again, this is according to Bede, though, so we can't be sure how accurate this is, but apparently they settled in Argyll from Northern Ireland at around 500 AD, under the command of Fergus Mormacherk. It's important for us to note, though, that there really isn't an archaeological record that supports this. And some historians even claim that settlement might have gone in the opposite direction, much further back in history. But again, there's not really an archaeological record for that either. So basically, we're left with legend and the account of a monk writing a couple hundred years later. So where did they come from? Who knows? But we've got Scotty now, and apparently they're settled in Argyle, at least according to Bede. But that's the legend, so there you have it. And actually, speaking of legends, let's talk about how the Picts first got set up by Carithne. So, Carithne had seven children, and he divided Alba between them. So he basically just made seven major counties. And again, according to legend, each of these counties, I guess you call them counties, had two major territories within them. And then these territories would be ruled by a king and then a sub-king. So one territory within each county would be elevated above the other. And then some of these kings would then serve beneath other kings who operated like overkings. And then finally, there was a king of the overkings. That's confusing as hell, isn't it? So let's try this a different way. Maybe it'll be a little bit easier to think about this in terms that we're more familiar with, since in our modern context, we think of kings as having absolute power. So instead, let's change some of the wording. So the mayor of Caithness serves at the pleasure of the Earl of Cat who in turn is a subordinate to the Duke of the North, and the Duke answers to the King. That's pretty much how it worked, but instead you just use different terminologies. Sub-Kings, Kings, Over-Kings, King of Over-Kings. So there you have it. And actually, that reminds me of a question that was raised by member Abigail on the forums. She wanted to know why the High King of Ireland, Neil of Nine Hostages, was called of Nine Hostages. So this guy was king at around 400 AD, and fun fact here, according to legend, he was involved in the capture of Patricus, the young Briton who was forced to tend flocks in Ireland before escaping, and later returning and becoming known as St. Patrick. And actually, here's another fun fact, Nial was the great-grandfather of St. Columba. Anyway, so Nial was a high king, similar to the king of overkings that we've been talking about. And he was known as of nine hostages because he was so powerful that he was able to demand tribute from nine other kingdoms and held hostages to ensure prompt payment. It was pretty burly, basically. Now, why am I talking about Ireland in a podcast about the Picts? In fact, why do I keep mentioning Ireland off and on whenever I'm speaking about the Celtic roots of Great Britain? Well, our sources are rather limited in a variety of ways, and Ireland is a pretty good place to look in order to fill in the gaps. What we're looking for are communities that aggressively resisted Romanization. And the nice thing about our little corner of the world is that we have several cultures who once had close cultural ties that also wanted to have nothing to do with Rome. Now, England and Wales aren't particularly useful for the discussion because they were so thoroughly dominated by Rome by the end of the occupation. And so much of the Celtic story for them is much more muddied. But cultures like Ireland and the Picts give us a better shot at judging at what an unmuddied Celtic culture would look like. But like I've said in the past, this is a bit like putting frog genes into dino DNA. 
It might splice perfectly, but you might end up with dinosaurs that can switch sexes, eat Samuel L. Jackson, and then escape off your island. Anyway, so that's why I was talking about Nial, because of dino DNA. And actually, this sort of hostage taking was done in Alba as well. For example, when St. Columba visited King Bridey's court near Inverness, he learned of how King Bridey had hostages from Orkney. Something else that is interesting in this story is that it reflects the strength of the North during the early Pictish kingdoms. As we mentioned earlier, there is a certain amount of tension between the northern and southern tribes of Alba throughout most of the history, but until around the 7th century, the northern territories seemed to have been dominant. Now eventually, that power would shift to the south, and the province of Fortrio would become the seat of power, and eventually all the Pictish kings of overkings would rule from Fortrio, so there was going to be a transition, and actually the lesser kings would become stewards, their title being Mormaer, which sounds suspiciously like mayor to me. Now by the 8th century, the Picts were becoming much more organized, and the southern king of overkings centralized quite a lot of power, but with that came difficulties. Alba had quite a variety of natural barriers to impede organization. In fact, it was becoming difficult for the kings of overkings to even visit all of their estates in a single year. To deal with this problem, royal officials were appointed with the duty of running the estate in the king's absence. These officials had soldiers that answered to them, and they were granted leave to dispense justice in the king's name, gather taxes, and conduct the various other duties of an official acting in place of the king. There were even settlements to house and provide for this official, often with individuals bound to the land, though not necessarily enslaved. Eventually, this position adopted the Anglo-Saxon title Thane. So by this point, we're seeing Thanes serving beneath more mayors who were serving beneath kings. And it's starting to look a lot like a traditional feudal empire now, isn't it? And what was a Thane or king without his band of warriors? Consequently, these leaders would have used their taxes to acquire lavish presents to gift his loyal followers, who would serve as his retinue and bodyguards and whatnot. Jewelry, weapons, and all manner of things would have been given to these men. Horses were highly valued by the Picts. We see them appear rather prominently on simple stones, in fact, so maybe horses would have been given to the best and most trusted out of these thanes or king's men. And by gathering wealth to them and then distributing it to those who were loyal, these early leaders would have been able to ensure that their men's allegiances didn't waver. And actually, at around this period in history, Bede was writing about how there were four races in Britain. The English, the British, who were the Welsh, the Irish, and the Picts. And he wrote actually about how the Picts had their own culture and language. And the matter of the language is actually rather interesting to me. So on the island, you have Brythonic Celtic, Old English, and Goidelic languages present. And then Pictish, which apparently was not like the Old Celtic languages, nor the new Anglo-Saxon language. So what on earth were they speaking? Could it be that they were speaking a native language? One that existed before the rise of Celtic culture? Some historians believe that this was the case. But as you're probably becoming accustomed to, there are precious few absolute facts in this period in history. And the issue of language is not without controversy, and there have been painstaking studies conducted that argue that the Pictish language would have been basically a distant relative of the Brythonic Celtic language. Personally, I think that the idea that this was a distant dialect of Brythonic to be much more likely. Just think about it in context of what we know about the history of the region. 
From at least the Bronze Age, Scotland had contact with the South. And into the Iron Age, those regions that Scotland had contact with would have been speaking a Brythonic Celtic language. And by the time the Romans arrived, the tribes in the north still had a relationship with the Britons in the south. So they would have had to at least have been able to understand each other. Now, to Bede, they might have sounded like completely different languages. I mean, after all, they've been separated from each other for hundreds of years thanks to the Roman occupation. And maybe the northern tribes had incorporated native languages into their Brythonic language, forming something that's related to Brythonic Celtic, but had its own unique flavor. Moreover, when we're speaking about the span of hundreds of years where these cultures have been separated thanks to the Roman invasions, the languages are going to evolve in different directions. I mean, the trade relationships had largely been severed, so the languages were just left to develop on their own. So to Bede, Pictish probably sounded like some completely new language entirely. And the British, who we now call the Welsh, might not have been able to understand the Picts as well anymore, as their languages had evolved in different circumstances and whatnot. But in that situation, we're not talking about an indigenous language, but rather an offshoot of Brythonic Celtic that might have incorporated some of the indigenous elements. To me, that just makes more sense than an indigenous language that's just managed to hold out this entire time and just rear its head when the Pictish tribes became dominant. Now, something interesting to add into this discussion is what the ancient Welsh called the Picts. They called them Prydyn, which sounds a lot like Brython, really, doesn't it? And given the potential linguistic connection, it does make me wonder whether the Welsh saw the Picts as an older version of themselves. Although that interpretation does sound a lot like, you know, the noble savage argument, so it could just be a coincidence. Or maybe Prydyn was just a derivative of Pict. Who knows? But the Picts were almost certainly the last of the British, the last to be absorbed into other cultures. And the story of these people isn't over. In fact, we've jumped forward in history significantly, and once we get back to the main podcast, we're going to retreat a little bit to about 410, and the Picts in our story will still be quite active. And actually, if you think about it, the Picts are still active today. They simply merged with another group and adopted another name. So as we go forward in the main podcast, we're going to see this culture we've been speaking about for about a month and a half now again, and we'll hear about how they eventually became known as the Scottish. But that's going to have to wait for the main podcast. So as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also head over to the website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com, and join in the forums and whatnot over there. Or you can join us at Facebook at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And as always, thanks for listening.